This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we cover Ridley Scott's 2015 film, The Martian. So we read the book, and we've watched the film now, The Martian. You've seen it before, but what was your viewing like this time? So I think this is my third time seeing it, and this was my first time seeing the extended edition, um, which I th- I- I'm pretty sure I could pick out what scenes were added. Um, it was just like small stuff. Added a little bit of texture to the movie a little bit. Um, but I was thinking about it, and, and extended editions seem to me like they're made for book book fans right whenever it's an extended edition of a book movie Mm -hmm. book to movie so i always feel like if we have the option to watch an extended version we should just because there's going to be like little things in there that maybe were like included just for to please book fans Um, i don't know how much that was really this extended version but i mean definitely like lord of the rings and stuff that is the case so um, whenever i find an extended version for a movie that we're going to cover i'm going to try and watch it i think well, and it's funny that you mentioned extended editions because Ridley Scott is just like notorious for having extended editions for his films. And, and like with the case of like Kingdom of Heaven, uh, that film is so different when you watch the extended edition because it was really? it was like panned by critics, uh, the theatrical release was. And then you see the extended edition and you realize the vision that Ridley had and what he actually wanted to put on screen and totally different movie, completely different experience. Man. That's that's been on my list for a while because I saw the original and was like, eh, it was okay. And and, yeah. and and then so many people have told me that about the extended version. Like I needed to sit down and watch it one of these days. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I mean, this has an extended edition, and then and then you know we talked in our Blade Runner coverage way way back. All yeah. the uh, all the different cuts that Blade Runner has, you know, the director's cut and the complete edition and all that other stuff. Yeah. So momentary tangent have you read that uh denny villeneuve has talked about a four-hour edition of blade runner 2049 out there and yeah i heard him say he's never (laughs) gonna release it though it's never coming out (laughs) yeah well never say never (laughs) yeah i mean i would watch it i'm I'm one of those weirdos like i'd watch it i I, I like that movie enough but um yeah let's get back to obviously things are cut to make it more appealing to a general audience most of the time yeah and so, but this film, it's interesting because the, I feel like the extended edition really didn't change it very much at all for me. No, not, not really. And, um, and I could see a lot of reasons why they would cut it. To me, it was like a lot of the decisions were made just to keep pacing tight, keep things moving, stuff that kind of distracts from like the overall, uh, suspense of a certain thing. There's every now and then where there'd be a scene where I'd be like, yeah, this was definitely not in the original because it totally kind of is beside the point of what's going on right now yeah and i mean Um, as as a director too you have to think like every time you cut from watney back to nasa you're killing with any any sort of like running tension that you had and you have to reset that up as soon as you go back to watney again so it's like i can see why like maybe cutting back and forth between them a few like you know however many scenes were added like four or five four or five less times could maybe keep you more invested in what was going on with Watney on Mars and also more invested in what was going on with NASA because it's not not quite as back and forth. It does feel like I, I'm someone who appreciates movies that that do progress at a stately pace if I'm enjoying it. And and I think 
the benefit of some of these extended editions is they can really add just like fill in the world and fill in some of the cracks of the story and and make it feel like a more completed thing whereas sometimes the the theatrical cut is very targeted mm-hmm. it gets in and gets out and it, it kind of feels that way like there's no real time for it to breathe and so sometimes the extended edition as i think can be nice for that reason i think that's what it did for this particular movie mm-hmm. it felt like this story had a little bit more time to breathe it had a little bit more going on than just the main plot um at times and I don't know. We, we're going to have to talk about some of these scenes, I guess, as we come to them, since we've, we've talked about them so much here vaguely. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you, just since we're kind of talking generally about the film, yeah. I, I felt that there was this really interesting thing that happened with the film here. We talked about in our book coverage how we felt like we weren't really getting a proper main character introspective point of view. And I think Ridley did something interesting where I think we almost get more of mark watney's struggles and more of his like inner turmoil and the things that he's going through in the in the film than we even do in the book absolutely uh i think that's to me the major thing that shines about this movie uh the thing that i and this was my reaction when i first saw it too because this was something i i originally that was one of my only like minor criticisms of the book was i felt like i wanted a little bit more of that and i definitely got it in the movie and and a lot of it's very subtle because a lot of it's just what you can see on you know matt damon's face Right. Um, so the acting that he's doing in a lot of these scenes. Um, and then like, yeah, because we're not limited to the logs. We're seeing stuff play out in real time. We can see like emotional reactions to things as it happens, mm-hmm. um, which kind of brings like an immediacy to a lot of those emotional reactions. And yeah, I agree. And, and, and a lot of those introspective moments. Well, and one that stood out to me is when he talks about how he likes to go sit out and stare at the vast horizons. Mm-hmm. Because um, he can. Because he can. Yeah. I don't think that was something from the book. And and that that feels subtly different to me from the Mark Watney in the book. Because that feels like a more introspective person. Right. Um, I don't know. It, it, or, or more re- reflective. Uh, you know, more contemplative. Whatever uh, mm-hmm. adjective you want to use there. I. Uh, it just... I liked that. I think that added a little bit of something that, that I was kind of missing in the book. As much as I love the book, and I do. Um, I, I like that part of the movie for sure. And I mean, in the book, we get descriptions of Mars, you know, tons of descriptions of Mars. But there's something about these like sprawling, like almost like satellite view shots of like the craters and everything on Mars that we get um, that really does like a great job of like establishing how isolated he is, how how scary the planet is, how I don't know. And they're also just beautiful shots. And it was just cool to see like uh, them bring like render that and bring that to life. And uh, I think that made for the because if we didn't get those, I feel like we would have felt so much more contained. Like we would have felt as claustrophobic as as Mark does because he constantly is in a suit. He's in a he's in a rover. He's in a he can never really be free. And so I felt like those were like our moments to kind of breathe and like look around and, and feel like we could relax. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it also highlights how alone he is. Um, and I, and I, like, you know in your mind when you're reading the book, okay, he's alone on this planet. But there's something about seeing those vast expanses and seeing kind of those, like, uh, space shots and, and knowing how far away Mars is from Earth and how long of a journey it is. And then, and then yeah, just the idea of being the only human being on an entire planet is kind of... Like it's so hard to imagine. Yeah, and I love the uh, the moments where he's like, "Everywhere I go, I'm the first. 
everything yeah. I do. I'm, I'm the first one to be here. I'm the first person. Yeah. I'm the first person to ever be alone on a planet. And that's right out of the book, those mm-hmm. lines. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love that stuff. I want to talk about, I think this kind of goes well into our Ridley Scott discussion, kind of talking about the director. I think that Ridley really did a great job of capturing that. What we talked about in the book was that spirit, the the unity coming together for a common goal or cause. And like yeah. there's some of the shots where we see like Times Square when everybody's waiting for the launch. And I think those shots really did a great job of conveying exactly who was invested in it. You know what I mean? Everyone around the world, the most people of all time were watching this. Yeah, I'm always a sucker for those shots, those those big crowd shots. Um, and I know in the back of my mind that they probably just videotape people or videotape. They probably just recorded people uh, watching like a big sporting event or something, you know, to get those reactions. Um, but it, but it, it always it does get you in a certain way. Like, I don't know, there's a certain communal because there are moments like that, right, that we've all been a part of where there was some huge event and, and we remember watching it on the news or whatever and seeing everybody react and. Um, I don't know. There's something fun about that, and and I totally agree. I think it does. It does. It's one of those. It's kind of a trope in certain kinds of movies, but it's also one of those tropes that I like because it it works for me. Yeah, there's like the trope of like the the space mission, right? Like the mission control, and like everybody's so tense, and then when the mission pull, then they finally pull it off, everybody cheers and stuff. Well, that at least definitely has a basis in real life. Oh, absolutely. That's <laughs> because, what I was like, say. Every is... time it, there's a real one, like that really happens. Yeah, and and that, I I think that that's so cool too because. That is like that, like pure expression of joy that that um, well, and that actually uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, who plays uh, Vincent Kapoor in this movie, yeah. who absolutely like Chiwetel Ejiofor absolutely killed it. He actually got to spend some time with like the European Space Agency, basically. And they were he was there around the time that they like did a soft landing on a comet, which was like the first time of ever. And he was there to see, wow. like, how tense this guy was. And he kind of, like, based his performance around that, like, how tense he was and how, like, he was handling the situation. The, just flipping that switch when it was successful and just, like, the guy screaming and just losing his mind. Um, yeah. And, and, I mean, this was talked about in the book some, too. But you also get to see the flip side of that, of what, what those rooms are like when things go wrong, right? Yeah. And I think that's also really cool because that definitely happens, too. And, you know, sometimes those rockets explode. And it's always really bad. <laughs> it's, you yeah. know, and, and so many people work so hard on it, so much money, and um, yeah. I, and it's that was a that was a detail from the book, the whole uh, lock the doors thing. Apparently, that's something that they say, but it's I don't think it actually means like lock the doors, no one's allowed in or out. <laughs> I don't think that's what it means, but it's just something they say. I guess it's like I think it's like press, like no no press. Nobody's like yeah. We need to figure this out before we tell. Don't let the press in. Yeah, right. you're probably right. You're probably right. Um, yeah. So the, one other thing that I just have to mention because I love this guy to death, President Barack Obama named this as his uh-huh. favorite film of 2015. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I just like wanted to shout that out. It's pretty nice. cool. Um, and I can uh, totally see it too because it's like yeah. I, if you're a president and you're, you know, like think about like the the spirit of people that you believe well, in. Yeah. And- it, it's nationalism done right, right? You know, it's, it's uh, America being a leader in a international community and working together with allies to achieve something great and i think that's yeah that's 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 what you want to see speaking of uh so there was something else that about andy weir that i wanted to bring up in this in this episode since i forgot to mention it last time and i may have told you this story i don't know but during filming they wanted to fly him out to um different places they were shooting in the desert i think and Mm -hmm. you probably know better than i do yeah the location is uh wadi rum jordan okay yeah so it's like a Um, desert location 
Yeah, deserts. Yeah, and and so they wanted to fly him out um, for onto the set and everything, and he he didn't do it um, because he's deathly afraid of flying. Really? Yeah, he has like a severe phobia of flying. Wow. Which, yeah, which is pretty interesting. Um, and it was in and but I, I read. I, I'm pretty sure this is based off a memory of something I read a while ago. But I'm pretty sure it he uh, did go to the premiere. And the only reason he was able to do it was he had to he like did a months of uh, therapy and like working through it and all this stuff to where he could get on a plane and, and fly to the premiere. That's wild. I uh, I watched an interview uh, somebody else I love uh, Adam Savage from MythBusters. He yeah. uh, did an interview with Weir, and I was listening to some of that. And Weir, he, I just could not believe like Andy Weir was pulling facts and like details and like exact like specifications and like technical knowledge of of like velocities and like how the like like it was unbelievable he was pulling it off of the top of his head um and he was just talking about how he he loves to just think about he would just like the reason that this book was conceived was just he was just sitting by himself just thinking about how you could do a mars mission with current technology yeah man i uh i think i've seen that same interview it was it was really cool um and I was listening back to our episode from last week, and that's one of the things that I, I felt like we didn't do a good enough job underlining, because I think we gave a little bit too much credit to the idea that he was getting all this input from experts and getting all this input from his community and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, no, 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 this guy knows his shit. It's um, crazy. And NASA NASA has like b- brought him on to talk to him and like, consult with him about things. Like he's he knows his shit and has been recognized for it, you know, after this movie. It's also crazy book. because like that's not originally his like background or industry. Like no. he just loves that stuff. But it's really interesting to hear that he's afraid of of rocket tra- slash legit, even just plane travel. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I feel like it's he probably knows too much, you know, like he 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 knows all the points of failure that are possible and and, and all this stuff to where sometimes like ignorance can be bliss for, with stuff like that. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and when you understand how things work so well, like I can see like being more afraid of it because you can know what can go wrong. It's like you hear about medical students with this all the time when they get a cold, they think they're like going to die because they've learned about all these other crazy diseases that present in much the same way. And, and so I think like, if you really understand how a plane works and, and like really, really down to that level, like it might be one of those things where like every little tremor, you might think, Oh, that's actually this crazy thing happening that I read about this one time. And we're now we're going to die. And I can see you, it kind of freaking you out. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I wonder if it's, it's something like that or I don't know. Maybe it's just one of those things where like anybody can have a phobia too. So yeah. who knows? I wonder so, if that led him to want to learn about that kind of stuff though. Cause there is also something to be said for like being afraid of something and then having it kind of interest you as well like you want to learn about it you like write what you know right so like what is he afraid of he's afraid of that kind of traveling so you just yeah. you just like exponentially increase that and then like he like what would be his worst nightmare being trapped on mars by himself you know yeah and then you write yeah that. and maybe that's like greater respect for people who do it all the time because yeah. you you're so afraid of it you're like it's it's like it's interesting to you that people can do it all the time so let's let's jump into some Ridley Scott stuff. I'm gonna go through some of his bio. So this is our second Ridley Scott movie. We did Blade Runner, right? Um, but that was a long time ago, and I don't know how much we actually talked about him as a filmmaker uh, specifically, I'm, as much or more just in regards to Blade Runner. I know that we we mentioned like movies that he had he had you know directed and, and been a part of, but I'm just gonna like of give <laughs> kind of like where he's at at this time in his life, as well as like okay, kind of yeah. where he came from. Yeah, because that's this this movie was made uh, what thirty years later right. <laughs> than Bla- the Blade Runner, so that's a big. Jump. I mean, the guy's like about he's like about to turn eighty two right now. Wow, I did not know he was that old. Yeah, that's that's pretty wild. Yeah, so I mean, he he didn't really like. I'll, I'll, here, well, let's get into it here, sir. 
Ridley Scott. Uh, mm. He has been knighted. He mm-hmm. has been described by film producer Michael Dealey as the very best eye in the business. Director Ridley Scott was born on November 30th, 1937 in South Shields, Tyne and Ware. He went to West Hartpool College of Art and then London's Royal College of Art, where he helped found the film department there. In 1962, he joined the BBC as a trainee set designer, working on several high-profile series. He attended a trainee director's course while he was there, and and his first directing job was on an episode of the popular BBC police series Z Cars in 1962. So, I mean, even right there, he's like... It's like 30. Yeah, he's close to 30. He's like 25 or so, right? Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, you're right, because 37, you said. Yeah. So... 25, he's directing. (laughs) It's incredible. More TV work followed until, frustrated by poor financial rewards at the BBC, he went into advertising. With his younger brother, Tony Scott, he formed the advertising production company RSA, Ridley Scott Associates, in 1967 and spent the next 10 years making some of the best-known and best-loved TV adverts ever shown on British television. He began working with producer David Putnam in the 1970s developing ideas for feature films. Their first joint endeavor, The Endeavor, The Duelist, in 1977, won the jury prize for best first work at Cannes in 1977 and was nominated for the Palme d'Or more than successfully launching Scott's feature film career. The success of Star Wars in 1977 inspired Scott's interest in making science fiction, and he accepted the offer to direct Dan O'Bannon's low-budget science fiction horror movie, Alien, in 1979, a critical and commercial success that firmly established his worldwide reputation as a movie director. Alien is like one of my favorite movies ever. And yeah, it holds agreed. up to this day in almost every way, and, and like so much of not only horror, but sci-fi can, can draw roots to that film. He would then go on to make films such as Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, and Black Hawk Down. He was awarded Knight Bachelor of the Order of the British Empire in 2003 at Queen's New Year's Honors for his substantial contribution to the f- British film industry. So I, I say all of that because we know how prolific Ridley Scott is. And, you know, he, not every director can can have every single one of their films be perfect. And, you know, people, there's, I, I don't know if you've seen like Exodus, Gods and Kings, but like, that's an example of yeah. a Ridley Scott movie that I would just say pass on. But yeah, I heard that. The guy is incredible. He's he's just like a so such a prolific filmmaker. Um, yeah. And I, the reason that we kind of I wanted to get that background is to to express to you where he was at in 2015 and, you know, 2014 when he was developing the movie. Uh, so his brother, Tony Scott, he had been working with him for a really long time, as I talked about. Yeah. And um, he tragically committed suicide in, I believe, 2013. Wow. 2012, 2012 or 2013. And um, I think that that affected Ridley Scott. And and all of this is kind of just like, this isn't his his words. This is what people have drawn from it and kind of what I saw in my research is, um, you know, his, your brother commits suicide and like the isolation of losing your brother and feeling like there's no one there. And just kind of like this film coming around the same time, people felt like being able to be in that headspace and like, you know, there's no way that it didn't trickle into the work in some way. Mm. Um, And I think uh, he himself said that his favorite part of the movie is that this, so all of that was kind of just like from my research, people are saying that the death of of Tony Scott really affected Ridley and, and had him, it had a certain effect on this film because of that. And, you know, you could say that's bullshit and i would you know who really knows is what i'm trying to say but i think that it has you can definitely see a little bit of it if you wanted to dig the thing that he has said though is his favorite part of the film is that no one is ever truly alone so although mark mark watney 
was alone on this planet. You know, millions of people wanted to get him home. Thousands of people were working around the clock to get him home. And then, you know, just the people that were watching and following along and hoping that he would make it back. Um, and I think that that's also like really nice to think about the idea that even if even if someone leaves you, you know, they're still there and memories and, and that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah, I like that. All right. And then so we have to talk about this because this is this is probably one of the, the things that stands out to me the most about this film is this is one of the most unbelievable casts that I've seen in a movie in such a long oh, time. Oh, yeah. It's it's especially now. Yeah. It's an embarrassment of riches. It's unbelievable. The, the people who are in this movie just mind blowing. Uh, Jessica Chastain, Michael Pena, uh, Kristen Wiig, Jeff Daniels, Sean Bean, Matt Damon, Kate Mara, Sebastian Stan, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Benedict Wong, Mackenzie Davis, and Donald Glover. Yeah, which I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those people have go- gone on to become even bigger stars than they were at the time. But even even at the time, they were they were well known. Um, yeah, truly, this a uh, really incredible cast, and it's amazing when you when you go back to NASA. I think is where it really kind of stands out. Because we've had we've had the crew, which you know you have Jessica Chastain in there, and then a few other familiar faces. And you're like, okay, and and you know, is it the winner? Bucky Brooks is in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Bucky but Barnes. He hadn't yeah. been yet. He hadn't been yet. Um, uh, Bar- was it Barnes? Bucky Barnes. Yeah. Oh man, you must be like. That's <laughs> <laughs> fine. It happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not the Marvel guy on this podcast. Um, clearly. Um, but I was like, oh, that's him. I actually didn't recognize him for a while in the movie. Yeah. It took me a while before I was like, oh, that's the same guy. Right. Um, cause he looks a lot different. Like he clearly got like, he like worked out a ton yeah. for that role and, and, and kind of changed how he looks. I wasn't going to bring it up, but you brought it up, dude. You brought up the Marvel cinematic universe. So <laughs> let's talk about that real quick in, in terms of these actors. Um, uh-huh. Michael Pena was in Ant-Man. Yeah. Ant-Man, uh, yeah. Matt Damon, it was in, was in Thor Ragnarok. He was like a fake Loki in like a play. He was like a little cameo role. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's um, right. Sebastian Stan, Winter Soldier. Chiwetel Ejiofor is Mordo in Doctor Strange. Uh, Benedict Wong oh, is, right, is yeah. Wong in Doctor Strange as well. Uh, and then Donald Glover was in was in Homecoming. I did not realize that was who that is. But that totally makes sense. Yeah, uh, I I like that role in Doctor Strange, but this role I love him in this movie. He's so good, dude. I I anything he's he, like, in, dude, he always scenes. kills it, knocks it out of the park. Yeah, he's so funny. Uh, and then of course I have to talk about my boy Donald Glover, who I've loved for a very long time um yeah the i mean like you can't even it's crazy man he's like the all-around artist he's a comedian he's an actor singer songwriter producer director um i can remember seeing like like old school youtube videos of him back in like back in the day and then he just rose to prominence and kept coming up and he was in you know community i watched him in community which speaking of community uh if there's any community fans out there i had this thing when i was watching this movie where i felt like donald glover like plays Troy in in Community, but in this in this film, it felt like he was channeling Danny Pudi's uh, Abed. He felt like he was doing like kind of like an Abed esque thing. So, uh, let me know if you agree with that. I have no idea what any of that means, but <laughs> it's it's funny because it's just like this like very eccentric character, and like Troy yeah. in in Community is kind of a jock who's got like a sensitive side. Uh, but it's just funny to see him play the eccentric role. Uh, and yeah, I mean yeah. the guys the guys absolutely blowing up. Obviously, he's everywhere right now, but he's just the best. And uh, dude, uh, I talked about Chiwetel Ejiofor, amazing. Jessica Chastain as the commander, unbelievable, yeah. dude. She's so good. We're gonna be seeing her in It, it Part Two this year. Yeah, I'm excited about that. That'll be as cool. As Bev Marsh, yeah. that's gonna be cool. But all right, when we finally come to the thing that I was, I it was probably my favorite part about the entire movie. Uh, Sean Bean is in this movie, <laughs> and I think we should address the uh, the. 
uh, Council of Elrond here at the top. <laughs> because <laughs> when I saw this in theaters, I remember being just like absolutely like thunderstruck, just dumb, dumbfounded, and I couldn't believe that it was happening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it and it feels like it was written for him, right? But it was in the book. Yeah, I know. That's what's incredible about it. Because I think a lot of people who see the movie and don't read the book thought it was written because it's Sean Bean. They're like, oh, they put this in there for him so that he'd have this moment on the screen, you know? Right. But it really wasn't. He just happened to be cast in that role. <laughs> it's so funny. And, like, I, I love all of it. The uh, There's, like, a little reference that gets dropped that I didn't even understand. And being a huge uh, Tolkien fan, I didn't even understand the reference, but I but I wrote it down here. Hold on. During the Council of Elrond discussion, Teddy Sanders states that he wants to be called Glorfindel. While mm-hmm. many people assume he was making a joke by creating a silly, vaguely elvish-sounding name, there is actually a minor character from the Lord of the Rings novels named Glorfindel, mm-hmm. uh, who is responsible for transporting Frodo on the last leg of the flight to Rivendell, uh, the role performed by Arwen in the film, and later participates in the Council as one of Elrond's chief advisors. His name means golden hair, and actor Jeff Daniels has go- has blonde hair. Yeah, I love that. It's like a deep book cut, um, which I yeah I remember when we covered Fellowship or, uh, last year, um, Glorfindel. I remember showing up and, and and taking Frodo and and yeah, we talked about how that got that got changed to Arwen in the movie. I remember um, I remember somebody yeah. besides Arwen, but I could not pull the name if if like even yeah. if you had a gun to my head. <laughs> but yeah, that was, it's so funny, such a good moment, and the fact that like Sean Bean is is describing the Council of Elrond, I was just like, I, I can't take this. <laughs> so good warm air oh uh and just shout out to Mackenzie davis who if you've ever seen halt and catch fire uh or she was also in blade runner 2049 um she's she's been in a few things recently Dude, I, I think she's great shout out to her in um in san junipero the san junipero episode of black mirror have you seen that oh i haven't seen that one yet oh no. my god man gotta see it i need to watch more black mirror such uh, one of my favorite black mirror episodes easily yeah uh so one uh something funny i saw on twitter around the time this movie came out was uh i think it was i think it was a scientist who tweeted this but i'm not sure but it was like uh the most ridiculous or the most science fiction part of the martian is the well-funded nasa <laughs> or something like that like uh, uh, nasa so well-funded like when you see the grounds of it when they arrive yeah caitlin like, mentioned that too like she was like <laughs> look how fucking like futuristic and everything the entranceways and everything is and like they're yeah. like so well-funded yeah, yeah. That was the thing that they saw and were like, that's pure science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, just a couple other little production things here. Um, Matt Damon was willing to lose a ton of weight for the film, you know, when he gets very skinny, malnourished. Uh, but Ridley Scott forbade it. He was like, "You can, I'm not allowing you to do that because I guess he's against that kind of thing because it's so unhealthy. Uh, and so they went with a body double instead. Yeah, which I think is obvious, um, yeah. unfortunately. But. Well, it's it's still well done in camp. Like, I think they did a pretty good job of, of the blending. Well, I guess it's like just it's... maybe if you're someone like me who like knows what to look for. <laughs> right. I mean, it's clearly, yeah. but it's like, it's like, you know, it's old Hollywood kind of stuff, like, like smoke and mirrors and like they make it look pretty good, I think. But it's clearly, it's clearly not Matt Damon. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you, when you see him with his shirt off and it's like chest up, you can tell that he's still... Well, it's like Broad. the thing about to go back Whereas to the guy you just saw was very narrow. <laughs> exactly. To go back to the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe real quick. Think about like Captain America before the super serum. Yeah. Before, like yeah. super soldier serum. Like he's like, it's so wonky looking. <laughs> yep. So Ridley Scott claimed that one of the most difficult scenes to direct and was to explain to the audience the hexadecimal system yeah. Watney uses to communicate with Earth, which Scott admitted was hard for himself to understand at first. 
Yeah, and I don't think they really explain it that well. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think you walk away from the movie understanding it as much as you go, okay. Yeah, you just say, like, okay, they, they know what they're doing, and I'm going to assume that they, <laughs> yeah. they can figure it out. Yeah. I The, the book uh, really attempts to explain it, and uh, once again, I, I felt like in the moment I read it, I was like, yeah, I think I kind of get what they're saying, and then, like, right after I finished that chapter, I immediately forgot it. Oh, yeah, no, I couldn't so. explain it to you at all right now. <laughs> <laughs> the Steely-Eyed Missile Man... Uh, about yeah. is a as a reference do you do you know about this story no let's okay. hear it. very interesting because uh, we talked last week about apollo 11 and apollo 13 a little bit um the steely-eyed missile man is a reference to flight controller john aaron's actions following two lightning strikes to the apollo 12 rocket in its first minute after liftoff the electrical surge caused numerous problems in the telemetry system of the craft which is un- which if unresolved would force a, a mission abort aaron recognized the telemetry problem as similar to one he's seen in testing a year before, and advised the crew to switch the signal conditioning electronics system to the auxiliary position. This control was so obscure that neither the capsule commander nor the mission commander knew what or even where it was, but pilot Alan Bean did. Following Aaron's advice, altering the setting immediately fixed the problem, allowing the mission to continue. Aaron's quick, calm, and effective response to the crisis earned him the appellation, widely considered to be the highest praise possible within NASA. Really? Yeah. That's cool, man. That's a deep cut reference. I didn't get that. That's so cool. A crazy, right? And we were talking about like how they constantly solve problems. Like yeah. everything goes wrong and then they just figure it out. It's wild. So this is more technical filmmaking stuff, but I, I think this is interesting. The exter- okay. exterior Martian scenes were shot at a slower speed to simulate Mars gravity, which is 38% of Earth's gravity. Therefore, anything on the surface yeah. of Mars needed to appear lighter and have a slight bounce to it. However, the frame rate that was desired would not allow the cameras to run in sync. To negate this, the film was shot at 48 frames per second during exterior scenes, which was then sped up to the standard 24 frames per second. This meant that most of the audio had to be re-recorded in post. As a result of this, syncing up audio with Mark's lips filmed at a slower rate would have been impossible. Ridley Scott chose to have Mark narrate the scenes instead of having him talk in the suit to avoid this problem. And this is one of the biggest issues with any space movie is gravity and how to make it believable and make it look right. Um, and honestly, I'm kind. Of, it's like I was like, why didn't they mention the whole gravity thing um, to lampshade it? But then it was like, once you call attention to it, then everybody's going to be looking. Whereas if you don't say anything, then maybe people because when he's in the hab and stuff like it's very clearly Earth gravity in there. <laughs> um, this is the same issue that, that comes up in. Um, have you seen the movie Moon? Right. Which is a great movie. Yeah. Like I love that movie. I oh, love it. Um, but when he's in when he's in the base, he's he's on Earth gravity. <laughs> it's and it's very obvious. And that's even more egregious because moon gravity is like seventeen percent right. Earth gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I didn't even think about that, honestly. Yeah. They got me with the the old Hollywood don't say anything about it. <laughs> yeah. But, just uh, don't say anything about it and we don't you don't think about all it. All right, now. you just drew a connection that I have to I have to point out. So you mentioned Moon. Moon is directed mm-hmm. by Duncan Jones, and Duncan Jones is okay. the son of David Bowie who has a song in this movie. <laughs> nice. Starman. Good pull. <laughs> in in this movie. Well, it's such a big moment for me. I wanted to talk about David Bowie and like what he means for space because like the guy was clearly <laughs> from outer space and like he's yeah. the coolest person to ever live. Um and having the true Martian. <laughs> he having having that song in this movie, I don't know. So it was such a cool moment for me because I love Bowie. I don't know. It was just awesome to 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 do that and then you you made the connection so I had to call it out. <laughs> Good pull. So before you get into the plot, uh, just make sure you stick around to the very end of this episode. We're going to reveal our next project uh, that, you know, what it's going to be. Um, it's going to we're excited because it's going to be a patron paid for exclusively project. Um, 
from from one of our you know high tier options. This is gonna be our first time doing one of those, so stick around and we'll reveal at the very end of the episode. All right, getting into plot here, I'm gonna do this in three parts, and we're gonna start with in 2035, the crew of the Ares Three mission to Mars are exploring when a strong dust storm threatens to topple their Mars ascent vehicle, forcing them to abort the mission. Mark Watney is struck by debris and lost in the storm. Watney is believed dead. Commander Lewis orders the crew to take off and rejoin the Hermes. Watney awakens after the storm to a low oxygen warning and returns to the crew's surface habitat. Doing self-surgery, he, rem- he removes from his abdomen the debris that destroyed his biomonitor. Lacking communications with Earth, his only chance of rescue is the Ares 4, landing 2,000 miles away at Scaparelli Crater. Being a botanist, he improvises a farm inside the hab u- using Martian soil fertilized with human feces. After NASA holds a funeral for Watney, satellite planner Mindy Park reviews images of the HAB area and realizes he has survived. NASA Administrator Teddy Sanders has the news released, but doesn't tell the crew of the Hermes. Watney takes the rover to retrieve the nearby Pathfinder probe, which fell silent in 1997. Using Pathfinder's camera and its motor, he establishes rudimentary two-way communications with Earth, first using simple signs, then sending and receiving ASCII in hexadecimal. I think it's, is that ASCII? ASCII. Yeah, I don't know if it's pronounced that way, but I feel like it is. (laughs) NASA sends a software patch to link the rover with Pathfinder and communicate via text. Watney becomes angry when he learns that the crew has not been told of of his survival, and Sanders reluctantly lets Henderson finally inform him. I I definitely want to jump back a little bit and and say uh, the decision to start with the mission as a whole instead of what we get in the book where we start with Watney already like we get his first log entry is the first mm-hmm. you know chapter of the book. Um, I think it was a great decision. I think it was the obvious one to make. Um, I think it was a very, uh, it was a very cinematic thing to start with, which is a great hook. Right. Right. Um, and then I love the way the storm looked. Um, it looked very dangerous. It was very dark. And there was something really cool about the scenes of them walking through the darkness with their like, you know, their helmet lights, mm-hmm. um, very alien, honestly, it reminded me that it was like a throwback to one of his own movies. So the, uh, the suits were, uh, there's like, there's, there were suits that were, had been, you know, NASA had been developing, really didn't like them. So he went with more of a Prometheus style, uh, cause he had been doing it, you know, I think Prometheus was 2012 or 2013. Oh, yeah. And so he yeah. kind of went with a suit that was similar to like the Prometheus look. Yeah, but these, honestly, I think these are some of the best-looking suits I've seen from any of his movies. I really like these Yeah, suits. me too. They're cool. Um, because I think he really tried to make them look like something that we would actually use. Yeah. It wasn't just pure science fiction suit. It right. was like, okay, I'm going to be a little bit fun with this, but I want to make it look Practical. like something we would really make yeah. in NASA. Right. So because of that, I think that, that like kind of grounds it in a way that I really liked. Oh, so the uh, the the self-surgery scene is uh, is pretty gruesome. And uh, is it that's that's always something that strike is always striking about this movie. Whenever I watch it, is a it's a cringe. It's like a cringy scene, and it's also like we talked about that survival genre. The more I think about it, the more I think like that's kind of a staple of the survival genre, right? Mm-hmm. Like some suffering some sort of injury and having to deal with it on your own, and and you, whether it's some sort of self surgery or self you know so you know some sort of self. Uh, treatment and it's always like some fairly gruesome thing where you think like I would have died there I wouldn't have been able to do that and like they kind of like show that the person you're watching is is not made of your like usual stuff right because mm-hmm. they're able to do this thing. I mean the first the first thing we get is like he comes in and like obviously he can't take his clothes off unless he cuts them off without pulling that thing out and he just yanks that thing out I'm like I feel like that was not 
advisable. <laughs> I feel like that's not the way. <laughs> well, but he but he had to. No, he had, he had to. to get the suit off. But it's just yeah. like I mean, what kind of intest? Like like I think pulling stuff out historically hasn't been great for people, right? It's like if you get stabbed, well, yeah, right? By if you're it, well, I mean, if you're like gonna go to be able to go to a hospital, you want to have the doctor do that, right? Absolutely. Like you don't want to do that on your own. You always want to leave it in because you'll yeah you'll that's a like very good way to bleed out is to pull out whatever's stuck in you, and that's that is something that's a big problem because a lot of people see it in films and think. You know, oh, I got something sticking out of my arm. I need to yank it out. Yeah. When really you need to leave it there until you get to a hospital. Um, but he didn't have that option, obviously. He had to do it himself. He had to be able to take his suit off to see with the wound and get to it and treat it. And like, so in order, the only way to get your suit off is you have to get that thing out of there first. Right. Um, so, yeah. And then I love the, the part where he pulled, he extracts the piece and then he holds it up to the end of it to make sure it like fit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. That's classic. I, I feel like I've seen that in other movies, but it's, it's a good one. It's a, it's a good thing. I like it. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> um, Pathfinder. So I was reading another article after, after we, our last episode that was breaking down the science in the movie. And uh, one of the things that it was like, it was like a, uh, I fucking love science page did a breakdown when the movie came out originally mm-hmm. um, of a lot of the science in the movie. And one of the things that was asked was, is what he does with Pathfinder possible? And their verdict was yes. They think that um, they talked to some of the guys who worked on Pathfinder, and they said that if you were able to provide power to it, um, there's no reason in their mind that it wouldn't be able to to uh, send signals. That's crazy. So that's totally legit that he could have done that. That's wild. Um, the, the design of the HAB, this is another thing from that article, is very theoretical um, because they obviously haven't figured out the designs. Um, and one of the things they think now is that um, it would actually be partially, if not mostly underground um, because um, radiation is such a huge problem um, because of the lack of, uh, of a sufficient ozone, um, especially in space travel, but then even on Mars. And so, and so they think that the HAB would have probably been a more of an underground structure and less of a sort of inflatable tent on the surface yeah i mean it's interesting because like i know that they want to do it as lightweight as possible but that canvas like repeatedly you're like god this feels so sketchy yeah um so a couple of things with that uh how about the decision to have the storm just constantly raging outside like a day in and like every night basically yeah there's a lot of winds whipping around now it's interesting because i was reading about it trying to understand it and and i guess it's not really i don't know we were we were describing this like thickness of the atmosphere and stuff and that's not really what it is it also has to do with pressure um and it's a very low pressure uh surface and so it's weird because you can get 100 mile an hour sandstorms on mars but because of the low pressure it would only feel like like about a 10 mile an hour sandstorm right is, is what i was reading so it's weird how that works um so it's like it's it's both accurate and inaccurate at the same time um one thing i did read is that um Mars Curiosity rover has actually caught images of um, dust devils on the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's totally legit that there would be those, like, dust devils. And now they said that, like, maybe they wouldn't look quite so dramatic as they do on screen. But but you never know also. I mean, we're learning crazy new shit about Mars all the time. Right. Yeah, I love it, dude. Okay, so this brings us to something kind of weird. And you'll have to tell me if this if we want to cut this or not but <laughs> i thought this was interesting to be in a ridley scott movie okay and just i want to bring a light to the fact that again this is obama's favorite movie of 2015 just uh this line right. being in here not being cut is uh very interesting to me so there's a moment when um they're telling him to watch his language right he gets pissed and he's like what the fuck are you guys doing oh <laughs> i know what you're gonna talk about <laughs> yeah so he's like what the fuck are you guys yeah. doing and they're like watch your language and then he messages back 
and then they talk about something called felching. And I was unfamiliar. I did not know what that was. I was as well, and I looked it and up. And they were like, they were like, don't Google it. Don't look it up. <laughs> and I was like, I got to do it, guys. I got to figure out what's going yeah. on. So I'm just going to say for the listeners, this is explicit. Just click that little 15-second <laughs> skip button if you need to. Um, yeah. So felching is a sexual practice involving the act of orally sucking semen out of the anus of one's partner. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's what it is, all right. When I looked it up, I saw that as well. Um, that's funny. I totally went over my head when I saw it in the theaters because I didn't know what it was. And um, it was just like, oh, something something explicit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's kind of awesome that Watney throws that at them. It's it. wild. And it's like, it's like clearly, like you said, it goes over the head of most people who watch it. And then it's like not yeah. until home release are you like, oh, maybe I will just Google this real quick. And then you Google it. And you're like, Whoa, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Wasn't expecting that. Okay, so jumping back into plot here. Henderson and Jet Propulsion Laboratory director prepare an Iris space probe to deliver enough food to Watney until Ares 4 arrives. Meanwhile, the Hab's airlock malfunctions due to a small puncture, destroying Watney's crops. Sanders orders the team to skip the usual safety inspections to launch the probe sooner, but it fails 40 seconds after liftoff. Watney now feels his death is inevitable. Oh man, the the scene the scene of the the ice coming in and flash freezing the crops. It's so cool. And that explosion we talked about in the last episode, I thought it was going to be really cool in the movie. And it was uh, the way it flips like end over end. And it's such a dark moment. Like it's so, oh my God moment. Like how's he going to ever get out of this? Um, just, just had to call that out. I love that scene. What's well, and it also like, um, like it leads to him taking this hab canvas and duct taping it on and, you know, latching it down and stuff. And like, yeah. again, those storms were like pretty, pretty wild in this movie. And then he takes his, he takes his, you know, his his spacesuit off when he's in the hab after it's been taped up and stuff and the entire time i'm just thinking like that hab canvas is the worst thing ever like it's like any rock flies anything like that touches that canvas yeah and they did a good job of showing that yeah and i know like rocks couldn't fly in mars like they were saying like large rocks couldn't fly because the winds you know wouldn't get high enough but within the within the context of this movie they can yeah so it's like yes really fucking scary when that thing's like yeah. flapping back and forth and i think matt damon's so, reaction so is tell out. me if this is actually an added scene but i believe there's a scene in in this version where he is like gluing a bunch of holes with a glue like a big glue gun looking thing and when i saw it i thought i don't think that was in the original cut but it to me it like sells this fix that he did a little more as being a little bit less of like because i remember some people who thought that was like huge bullshit they're like oh i can't believe he did that he would never do it that way well, it's like he, I mean, he also put the hab canvas over top of the rocket as it launched and, and that and it's like, so, <laughs> well, yeah. but yeah, that scene is, is added for the extended edition. Yeah. And I think it sells it a little better, honestly. Yeah. There's it, a few things like that, like him, him doing just a little bit more in relation to, to like certain things he's doing. Um, oh, and, and then that, just cause we're moving past it fast. I, I want to do, I, I do want to shout out the potato farm and how they visualize that, um, it just looks so cool on screen. Right. I don't know. I really like the way it looked. Um, it it just it I it didn't look the way I pictured it in the book, but it looked better. Right. <laughs> it looked like okay, this is how it would actually look. Yeah, is what I kept thinking. It's cool. They they so they built 20, 20 sets on sound stages for this movie, which isn't a ton for a movie like this. Like normally, you would expect a little more than that. Um, and so they actually, you know, in some of the sets, they actually built like working potato farms from what i understand or at least or at least had actual potato plants in some of the sets so moving on the china national space administration has been developing a powerful classified booster rocket 
Feeling camaraderie with NASA scientists, they offer it to repeat the IRIS mission. As Watney is still at more risk the longer he waits, JPL astrodynamicist Rich Parnell devises an alternate plan, sending the rocket with supplies to Hermes, which will use Earth's gravity to slingshot back to Mars two years earlier. Sanders rejects the idea, refusing to risk the crew of the Hermes, but Henderson surreptitiously sends them Purnell's plans. Risking their lives and careers, they vote unanimously for it and make the decision necessary to change course. Powerless to stop them, NASA concedes the issue. So one thing I got to shout out is something that struck me as cheesy when I saw it the first time and, and didn't really improve in subsequent viewings is there's a huge space movie cliche and I feel like every space movie does it. And this movie does it like three or four times where it's, we're going to grab a couple random items and we're going to play out what an or what it, like an orbit looks like. And it's going to be like, this is, this represents this and this represents this. And it's very clearly for the audience. And, but what's, when you start thinking about how ridiculous it is for these characters to yeah, be doing this, yeah. because they all know exactly what is being shown. Right. Like it's very rudimentary. And they're all like literally they're like physicists and shit who are like sitting there being t told how this is going to look. I don't know. And, and, and it's always like it's so dumbed down. Um, and like I said, I know why they do it. Like I know it's it's communicating to the audience, but I feel like there has to be better ways to visualize this than this like constantly going back to the to the idea of picking up you know two salt shakers and you know or whatever mm -hmm. and, and and doing it that way and then um i mean I, I interstellar does it with the with the whole folding the piece of paper and putting a pencil through like that's the other big one that you yeah. always see um for wormholes um i feel like every space movie is going to have one of those too well <laughs> like, and that's the thing like is like it's like so you go into a situation making a movie like this you're like and and i think that's another thing i wanted to touch on is that like we we said before like the the movie was made to be more broadly appealing so like you want it to yeah. be broadly appealing, you want it to be successful to the lowest common person. So like if they don't understand yeah. it, then they're gonna check out. Um, yeah, I just wish they had thought of a better way because right. because to me it's like a way that can serve the characters a little better. Because to me uh, was uh, Rich Purnell, you know Donald Glover's character, mm -hmm. is this brilliant mind who is who is who who can't even like interact with people in a normal way, and yet he's going to do this like very rudimentary you know uh demonstration of what he's talking about no that guy's just going to talk talk you know around you in circles and you're not going to know what the hell he's talking about and maybe you got to see like a see it on a screen or something or or, or or some you know somebody else explains it in a way to make sense of it but it just didn't feel right for the character and even though you do get that really funny moment where he doesn't know who the director of nasa is which gets a huge laugh every time i love so that funny. who are you and he's like teddy i'm the director of nasa <laughs> it's so good <laughs> um but then like yeah and then like i think there's even a moment where they like snap a pen on Kristen wig's head which was really weird yeah like why we, i mean like i know we're not supposed to like Kristen wig in this movie but that seemed a bit um over the line <laughs> yeah agreed <laughs> I would like to see them do away that, with that kind of stuff, but unfortunately, I don't. I don't see it happening anytime soon because I think what the the idea behind it is: Do you want to look at a screen that's going to explain it to you, which some movies do, or do you want to look at actors who are doing giving a performance? But I do agree that it undermines yeah. the characters, obviously, because uh, it's definitely a problem. It's definitely. I, I'm not saying it's easy, but I also don't believe that there's not another way you can do it. Yeah, I don't believe it. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I'm sure somebody will figure it out. Because to me, those scenes drag the movie down. They they always do whenever I see them. The other thing you could do, sorry, just no, to harp point. on it one more second longer, is remember that the people who are seeing this movie, 95% of them have seen 
that scene in another movie. <laughs> so rely on the fact that they probably know it, especially like the wormhole scene. Like we've all seen the folded paper pencil through the like we've all seen that now. You don't need to shut. If you just say anymore. slingshot in a space movie, people know what you're talking about. Just be like, yeah, we're gonna do a sp- slingshot yeah. move. Yeah, I think it's like you know, I don't know. Respect the intelligence of your of your audience a little bit more, maybe. I don't know. All right, so this last bit of plot here. Wani begins the 90s soul journey to... Sh- Real quick, I got to interrupt you because we're about to move away from okay. it. But when he's in the hab, he has uh, the Curiosity rover driving around in the background of scenes. And it looks like it's just kind of like doing its own thing. I absolutely love that. It just seems like it's his dog, um, which I think is like the coolest thing that like you're the Martian, you're on Mars, you're the sole person on this planet and you've like resurrected this deceased rover and now it's just driving around in your hab like a little dog for you. I think it's just really cool. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. It's a cool little addition. Uh, I guess while we're here, I did want to mention one other like cool little production thing. The original cover page of the draft of a script was aboard an actual NASA ship Orion when it launched. On the cover was a drawing of Matt Damon's character on Mars saying, I'm going to science the shit out of this planet. <laughs> so that's a cool okay. little thing that, I mean, that's obviously showing like NASA was invested in this this story in this movie. Well, they had to know it was going to be a great recruitment tool for them, which and rightfully it should be, you know, like, hell yeah, go sign up for NASA. Right. <laughs> I'm behind that. All right. So this last little, little bit of plot here is... Uh, Watney begins the 90 soul journey to Chaparelli, where the Mav for Ares 4 has been pre-positioned, but it needs to be lightened to make the rendezvous with Hermes on its new course. Watney must remove many components and re- replace the nose cone with pieces of the Hab's canvas. The MAV still fails to reach the required speed, so Commander Lewis maneuver- maneuvers Hermes, consuming most of its available fuel, then ordering a directional ex- explosive decompression of the internal atmosphere. Finally, she uses a manned maneuvering unit but still cannot quite reach Watney. He pierces the glove of his suit and uses the escaping air to propel himself towards Lewis, effectively reuniting him with his crew after 560 souls alone on Mars. After returning to Earth, Watney becomes a survival instructor for astronaut candidates. Five years later, on the anniversary of Ares 5 mission launch, those involved in Watney's rescue have begun new lives. So Captain Blondebeard, uh, his reign is over on mars <laughs> he's back on earth uh yeah i mean we see a lot of changes here at the end right um from the book um so i definitely want to hear your reaction to some of those um but just just before i move on from this in my notes i think this overall story is just a clinic on how to keep your pace moving and keep reader interest um and obviously it works in a movie too um by having just things constantly going wrong um, and, and the the frequency in which something goes wrong is like really well paced. It's really well spaced out in such a way um, to where it feels like you it never you never it never really gets to you never get a moment where you're like okay everything's gonna be okay like I don't know it, or it's a very short lived moment mm. before something else goes wrong and something else goes wrong. Well, I'm always um, a fan of like the idea yeah. of bringing a character like you take them to the brink like you start off in a certain position you start off at like a neutral area and then you take them to where it's like they are going to fail nothing can go right it's it's all over there's nothing else that yeah. can be done. Call that black moment. Yeah. Right. So the, so in that black moment. And then, which is, you know, he loses everything, the, the, the resupply mission fails, everything's like, there's no way he's going to make it. And then yep. just the, that makes the triumph so much better. You know, the, the climax. Yep. We love to see characters push past that. Yeah. And um, yeah, just the cascading, just the cascading of shit going wrong. I think like if you're ever, if you're ever wondering like what to do in your fiction to make something more exciting, 
make something go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it really works well. Um, so yeah, just to get back to that. So I have a lot of thoughts about the changes they did to the ending here, but I, I wanted to hear what you thought of it. I know we talked a little bit about the Iron Man thing um, and how it was a reference in the book, but then he doesn't end up doing it mm. in the book. Um, and in the movie, we actually see him doing it. Um, and then we get this this big kind of um, tethered moment where Lewis goes out herself to catch Watney. Um, how did that all play for you in the movie? Um, okay, so a couple of things. Uh, well, really, I'm of two minds. I think that making the ending more cinematic and having the Iron Man moment works for the movie because, like we've talked about before, what they're trying to do with this movie is make it more broadly appealing. And having, like, a huge moment like that where like people are off like untethered and flying around is is like the most like anxiety inducing thing you can do in a space movie is have somebody not tethered and they're flying around um yeah and so i think it works cinematically i think that works really well in terms of the story real quick we got a we got an unnecessary one of those with a winter soldier hopping around untethered for no real reason that i could discern yeah uh, on the outside of the v of the well, my thing is like he was yeah he, for whatever reason he needed to do it really quickly and i didn't understand the urgency yeah, it was. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get that. It felt unnecess- like an unnecessary moment of let's inject some drama by not having him be tethered. Yeah, which seemed ridiculous. Well, and I also, okay. I also, I know that those like um, the little um, mobile unit things that that uh, Commander Lewis puts on to go out and get him. For some reason, yeah. I, I when I was watching the film, I had assumed that he they had like because it's the future, it's like a condensed smaller version that's just built into each spacesuit now. So I was like, yeah. oh, okay, if he lets go then he'll be able to use like little jet propulsion stuff to get him back. But then she puts that thing on her back and like retroactively, I was like, holy shit. Like if he missed like any handholds, he was gone. Yeah. No, he just was jumping from like beam to beam in a movie. It was like moving and no for reason, no, reason no reason that I could discern. <laughs> yeah. Tension. Yeah. Tension. Okay. So, but uh, in terms of like the ending of the story, I prefer the book where it's like, it seems because it's like more true to the story, right? It's like the, these things like plausibly what's going to happen. Well, the big moment, the big dramatic moment is the launch and the, um, the bomb and the, and then, you know what I mean? Like that's all the big dramatic moment. And they, they kind of took that and they wanted to put a cherry on top mm-hmm. with the, with the Iron Man moment. And uh, the 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 end of the tether Lewis out there on her own. So that's another big thing. Like in the in the book, she doesn't go herself to do this because she's the commander. She stays on board and she sends one of her subordinates to do it. Like you should, and if you're a commander, usually, right? Yeah. But I don't know. I did like the like give Jessica Chastain some more to do. Like I was I was cool with that. Yeah, I can see that. I guess it just I don't know. It's a, it's it's one of those things. Whenever you get a movie or a story that is like so realistic. Um, I feel like it invites you to treat it with that kind of critical eye of like how realistic is this part, right? Right, because so much of the movie is so realistic. Yeah. Um, I don't know, and there, I think they were trying to do something symbolic with the um, te- like the 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 line and the way they kind of get wrapped up in it. To me, it kept feeling very like umbilical. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it was like if the ship represented humanity and like this sort of like taking in of, of the, of the prodigal son. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It's felt like they were trying to say something symbolically with that. I can see that. Um, did you, did you get any, any of that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so this is pretty funny. The, uh, I don't even know if you remember this anymore, but we saw, we saw wrinkle in time together. Mm-hmm. Remember the ending to wrinkle in time where like, there's this like weird, she's like jumping and there's like weird, like flowing Spoiler. space <laughs> stuff all around her. 
It's the very, very end. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's like lights and stuff. Lights, yeah. and she's like moving in slow motion and stuff. For some reason, it, it, that is why like, I shot over to that when the, like, it was all wrapped around them and everything. Um, but in terms of it being like representative of something, I could see like like it being, yeah. I mean, not only did it make for a cool shot with like it all like spooled out all around them and stuff. And then obviously you're like, well, they're going to get all like, you know, tethered. Like they're going to be all tangled, tangled up. up and yeah, they're not going to be able to, to effectively move yeah. back to the ship. I thought it was a bit schmaltzy, honestly. Like it, it just was all, I don't know. It, it was it, the whole end of this movie gets a little bit too sentimental in certain ways. I, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. Think, like the and yeah. so like let, since we're talking about that, let's just jump to that epilogue thing. Um, yeah. How do you feel about this in terms of so the book ends with him on the ship back on the Hermes on the way back to Earth. Yeah. And here yeah, we, get, we get no Earth scene. Yeah. So how do you feel about that though? The epilogue. So I I would have liked. Honestly, there's just one big thing I don't like about it. Um, I don't know. His speech he gives to the students is not a great one, in my opinion. Um, especially when he starts talking about how, like, at some point, everything's going to go south on you, and you think you're going to die, and you have to... I was like, okay, this sounds like the kind of speech that a commander gives and someone who's about to go into battle. It doesn't really feel like a NASA speech to me, because... I don't know if like on every mission there's a there's a point in which every astronaut's going to think they're going to die. Right. Like in in, in in I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but like I just don't it doesn't feel like that's a super frequent thing to happen. Like, yeah, you got to be prepared for it, but to sit there and say like it's going to happen to every single one of you, I don't know. Um I but I mean, but I maybe, guess I also even, understand even, like the the idea that Na- I mean, NASA does have an idea of being like plan for everything going wrong. So like yeah. the idea that well, sure. they should but be but that's a little different that. than what he was saying. Um but but uh even if I grant that that part of it was okay, I think the the like does anyone have any questions and then everybody's hand shoots up. It was just a little cheesy. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Um the part of that of the earth stuff I really liked though was him sitting on the bench and looking down and seeing the plant yeah. and like greeting it the same way he did his own like his plant when he first grew one, his potato plant. Um, and then seeing them all like jogging by even and like the respect that they clearly had for him like that could have been it and i would have liked that scene as as the, like the final scene honestly mm-hmm. um i liked that scene a lot so so yeah it's like a smaller quieter scene but i think it conveys a lot of what you're wanting to convey yeah i think that okay so so for me what i i would just cut the whole epilogue personally i i would rather just see yeah. them on the ship and know that they're gonna get home and and just you know think about the rest of their lives on my own but i don't know i kind of am into those kind of endings more than these like really nice bow tied up ones well we also see all the um tell me what you think of those th- scenes for sure but um we should also touch on the the sort of montage we get during the credits right uh you know, we get to see the the fam- like everybody's like like uh, two of them Great started a family. And- One of them is going back up, which is like showing that like you know the space program continues and and like because Watney was yeah. brought home and yeah, I mean I, I I like what it was trying to do. I like it, but I I prefer just just like get him back on the ship and he's on the way back home. Um, but like you said, I did. Th- I think if you were gonna leave anything, just have him touch the plant and be like like you know respected by those other people and then you can infer that he's going to be like some sort of professor or something yeah like if one of them says like you know professor watney or something like yeah. says when they're saying hi to him or something you can imply that that's about to happen or that that is happening and I, it just that's one of those moments where you what the kind of what's left unsaid is going to be so much more powerful in my opinion mm-hmm. than what we end up seeing i don't know maybe we're all being like curmudgeons about it but <laughs> I remember um, a lot of people I talked to after we saw the movie, people I knew, all thought that that final scene was like, kind of cheesy. Yeah. 
could have they could have done without. Oh, they also say day one, like it pops up day one, like it's a whole new mission and all that stuff. Like right. they do a lot to make it cheesy, honestly. It's no, like yeah. it's it's given too much. And yeah, it's like day one. And at first you're like day one back on Earth. Bullshit. He wouldn't look like that day one back on Earth. And then you have to like figure out, oh, day one at this new job. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Um, kind of weird. But yeah, I just I have a couple other little things here. Do you do you remember uh, or do you know about any of the Golden Globe stuff that went on with the Martian? There was like a bit of controversy. No. So. Oh wait, yeah, yeah. So let me see if I can remember. Uh, it was nominated as a comedy. Right. Not only not only nominated, but it won it won Best Picture in a in a comedy or musical. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about that? Hey, the movie is funny, but not, is it a comedy or musical? The movie is funny, but it's not a comedy. It's a drama, clearly. I, right. I, it's a drama. It's a sci-fi yeah. drama um so dramedy clearly but um leans heavily and i would say it leans way more heavily into drama than it does comedy yeah uh damon won best actor in a comedy or musical okay well there you go yeah and then uh i mean which uh, i mean he was good but once again not really a comedy but okay and then the film was nominated for seven academy awards including best picture best actor best adapted screenplay among oh, others okay i didn't know i didn't know it was that lauded in the awards awards uh realm it did really well which you know yeah. i feel like take it or leave it <laughs> oh yeah award, well yeah as far scene. as like awards go like you golden globes clearly like they've nominated it was a comedy so t- like take yeah. that to mean what you will about that award show i mean they've gotten a little better and stuff and i think that in response to this happening they've kind of changed some of the rules um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, ultimately, I like to tell people that like these are, I like to say like these things won these things because people can like immediately know what that means to them. But yeah. awards don't mean anything. Yeah, not really. And this, uh, the awards are weird in, in any art form. We talk about this all the time in writing. It's like there's a certain kind of book that will get nominated for awards that isn't always the same kind of book that's going to be a bestseller. Right. Um, and so a lot of times it will depend on what kind of writer you are and what your goals are, because if you're trying to write a bestseller versus if you're trying to write a critically acclaimed novel versus you're trying to write a novel that's going to win awards, those sometimes are all different things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, sometimes you can get lucky and kind of get, get all, get all of them, but it's very rare, honestly. It's it's a kind of a rare thing. Well, I mean, with, with film, with film in general, the people, the people who are voting, it's like, you know, a majority of them don't watch everything that's been nominated. So, like, yep. are they truly, like, the best source of who could be, you know, things things kind of get snowballing effects and, and, like, win. And so, ultimately, like, take take the awards at, with a grain of salt, I think, always. Uh, oh, so one thing I wanted to point out that, that we didn't really talk about much, but um, one of the things that I really respect about astronauts is the danger. There's an immense amount of danger that comes along with being in space in a lot of ways, but in particular, um, the amount of radiation you're exposed to. Um, is like the cancer levels in later life in astronauts are astronomically high. Um, and so you you go into space knowing you're signing up for, you're probably going to have cancer when you get back, if you survive this. Mm-hmm. And at some point in your life. And from what I understand, Mark Watney's would be like, it would be a, a virtual lock that he would get cancer because of how much radiation he would have been exposed to. I mean, to not to Mars. mention the isotope as well. Yeah, and then also the length of the space travel. That's one of the biggest barriers to a trip to Mars is the length of time you're on the ship. Mm-hmm. Now, since this is science fiction, I can try and be gracious and say maybe they we figured out some sort of shielding 
you know what I mean, to 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 help with this. Um, but that feels very hand wavy to me. And mm. this, this is a movie that isn't hand wavy. So I, I think it's also the idea that that you are um, you're signing up for that. And that's what a lot of astronauts are doing these days. You know, they're, they're basically saying that they're OK with that. Um, and it's worth it for them to be in space. And the longer you're in space, the more of a risk it is. So whenever you hear about somebody coming back who's been on in on the space station for however long, you know, it's like the longest time someone's been on the space station, they have all kinds of health problems when they get back. Mm-hmm. Didn't they do, um, they did, they did studies on, uh, there's a guy who was like a twin, went up yeah. and uh, he's come back and it like altered his DNA in ways. Sure. Yeah, because he was in zero gravity, which is another whole thing where that will like really dramatically affect your bones and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, the amount of time in zero gravity is is another huge problem. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to shout it out because I think it's 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 admirable to me that people are willing to sacrifice in that way. And, the, yeah. and the, I don't think we maybe recognize that enough. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, uh, it's it's and it's always been that way, too. Like from the early yeah. days, like those guys were going up in rickety rockets that. Well, and before that, they didn't know. They were like, who they didn't, like a lot of that shit. It was like, we don't know what it's what it's going to do. Right. You're just like, you're kind of like, yeah, they maybe they, they did some early testing with different animals and stuff that they sent up. But like for the most part, they didn't really know what it was going to do when we got up there. I mean, just imagine trying to be the first person. Like you don't know if you're coming back. If you make it through the atmosphere, you don't know for sure that you're making it back. So one crazy thing I read about, they didn't know um, there was a real fear they thought that there was a there was a risk of if you floated out to the center of a room you were in, um, that you wouldn't be able to get back, that you would be stuck there. Right. Um, they actually they really were worried about this being a real possibility. Um, and what they found is that your um the swimming through air gives you enough propulsion to where you can actually kind of swim around anywhere you need to go. Mm-hmm. Um. But they were worried, like, that was a real worry. And they didn't know, you know, when they went up there, like, be careful about being out in the middle of nowhere. You might not be able to ever get to the site again. Yeah. You might just be stuck. (laughs) (laughs) Terrifying. But that's what, yeah, and they're willing to (laughs) sign up for it because it was, you know. Yeah. They were willing to die for it, basically. Everybody, everybody, I think, I think we can safely say that every astronaut knows that that there's a potential. And they know in the immediate, in the immediate future and also, like you say, like, later effects. All right, so before we leave The Martian, um, which was our first real hard sci-fi, I just wanted to like get your kind of, now that we've gone through the whole process and, and, and we can look back at it, um, what your thoughts were about covering something that is so steeped in science and, and uh, you know, real math and all that. And, and the movie like is to an extent too, and so I think it, it all kind of comes together. And we've talked about how much we admire the space program, um, but, but as a project for the podcast, like how do, how do you feel about it? I mean, I think it was really cool. I think it, it like we got to scratch an itch that that I've had for a little while in terms of like I, I talked about on the other episode how I, like I wanted to sometimes I, I like miss doing some, you know, hard math or science and not that I actually yeah. did any of this calculation, but I feel like <laughs> it, I was able to, you know, live vicariously yeah. through. Mark. You were in the room with someone who was doing it, right. <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I, I think it was fun. Uh, yeah. I think the cool thing about this podcast is that we can really, you know, cover every type of genre and, and get, I, that's what I want. It's like, you know, yeah. tons of different perspectives and experiences. And, and I think this was another good one. Yeah. And for listeners, if you enjoyed this kind of thing, definitely let, let us know with suggestions on any other uh, hard sci-fi movies that have been made from novels that we could potentially do. Cause I, yeah, I would love to go back to this and I've heard, um, I've heard some, some rumors about certain 
um, Arthur C. Clarke novels that I think were going were rumored to be in you know uh, production. So we might get some more stuff on the on the horizon here. Um, I also did some more research into what qualifies as hard sci-fi after we talked last time, and it seems like it's actually a kind of a broader line than I thought it was. Like I've seen people call um, Arrival hard sci-fi. I've seen people call um, just just lots of stuff. Like it, it, it depends on how you know. Like it's a very it's just like a lot of genres. It's very kind of um, subjective. Very subjective. Early. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's it's it, there's not like really fixed borders on these things. So um, I'm sure we'll get back into some of that stuff. But we do have an exciting project coming up, um, which I'm gonna we're gonna reveal at the very end of the episode. So make sure to to stick around for that because uh, I don't know I'm excited about it and it's gonna be our first time doing one that was paid for by a patron. Yeah, if you wanted to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film, and we also have a Facebook group called the Council of Inklings which is great because we post polls in there and, and interact with everybody in the council and send out kind of news of upcoming projects potentially. Uh, so yeah, check that out if you're interested. Yeah, we'd love to have you there. Um, we also have a Gmail account, inktofilm at gmail.com. If you wanted to send us any feedback, if you wanted to send us any suggestions or just your your reactions to this book or movie, we'd love to hear from you. Also, if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, we would really appreciate that. You know, we hit 50 this past year and we're, we're hoping to hit 100. Yeah, I mean, we, we've kind of had a drought, uh, drought here for a little while. It's been, a f- I think it's been a few months since we've gotten a new one, or at least a month. Um, so we'd love to get some new, some new reviews. Um, that would, that would be awesome. So, uh, yeah, every time one gets posted in there, I definitely see it. Sometimes I share them to our Instagram account or our Twitter account. So uh, it's a good way to just kind of like uh, broadcast your your appreciation for the show. Um, and we'd definitely greatly appreciate that. Uh, oh, and we also wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Okay, it's time to announce yeah. our next project for February. Yep. So we are going to do Silver Linings Playbook, which is a movie slash book that I know very little about other than a little bit about the premise. Um, but I have never read it and I've never seen it. How about you? I, you know, this would be an interesting little exercise here. So so I've seen the, I've seen the movie. Um, I, I'm a fan of the movie. Just I, I wonder what like through cultural osmosis do you know about it at all, if anything? Uh, I know it's about mental illness and I, and Bradley Cooper's in it and, uh, that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then there you go. I mean, we're going in, you're going in really fast. I'm going Uh, in blind, man. Pretty blind. I think I saw the trailer when it originally came out. So I'm sure there's more of it. I know I've just forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Bradley Cooper, by the way, I just watched, uh, Star is Born this weekend for the first time. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. I watched it, uh, fairly recently too. Yeah. It was good. Um, yeah. and, and I was, and it was funny cause the whole time I, I was, I was turning to the people I was with who had seen it before. And I was like, is he doing a Sam Elliott impression? And she was <laughs> like, actually Sam Elliott plays his brother and he wanted to, he wanted to, you know, make his voice sound like him. And I was like, he sounds like he's doing a Sam Elliott impression, Yeah, <laughs> which, you know, it was, I liked the movie. Yeah. I liked the movie. It was, it was interesting because like I was not on board until like halfway through the movie. Like I was not having it. I felt very by the book and very like, like generic until like halfway Mm. through. And then I started to click into like actually enjoying it. And then the last bit is just unbelievable. So good. Yeah. It's some great, there's some great music in that movie for sure. So if you're, if you're just a fan of music and you're a fan of Lady Gaga at all, it's a, it's, it's, it's a great for that reason. Uh, And Bradley Cooper can sing. I was, I was impressed with him. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's a different movie. We're doing Silver Lining's Playbook, but Bradley Cooper's in it. So it'll be cool to kind of revisit him and, and, and see him playing, a, I assume, a very different kind of role. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. 
Yeah. And if you wanted to be- learn how to become a patron, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and we'll have all our different tiers on there. Now, the tier that you have to do is for this is our jukebox hero level, which is $25 a month, which is a lot. Um, but we were always told when we were starting up with this podcast, um, don't underestimate people's generosity. So we decided to include this like premium tier. Um, and if you, and if you're willing to be that generous and really help the show that much, um, we thought we're going to do episodes for you then. So we're doing two episodes on this project that was bought and paid for by Stephen E, um, and his generosity. So big shout out to him, you know, thank you. And we'll definitely shout him out on the, on those episodes. But, um, yeah, if you wanted to learn anything about that or our lower tiers and like what kind of stuff we're offering for that and bonus episodes, all that, um, definitely check us out. Yeah. And just one other thing about that is, is basically like if you, there's a project that you would like to see us do, that's that's like basically the best way to kind of force our hand and you can see the list and, and kind of see see like what you would love to hear us cover. Um, and if it's not on that list, just let us know. All right. Uh, so we hope you'll stick around and uh, come back next week and, and hear Silver Linings Playbook. Um, but until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.